Well, if you're just joining us, uh, each fall we've decided to uh, look at the book of Genesis. And so last fall I preached through uh, Genesis 1 through 3. And this fall we're going to preach through Genesis uh, 4 through 11. And uh, two weeks ago was uh, chapter 4, which was Cain and Abel. And so if you didn't get a chance, that's up on the website now. You can find that on the website, uh, Cain and Abel. And then last week, the riveting text of uh, genealogy, and uh, just, just Genesis 5. And this morning, we, we move into Genesis 6, and this is going to be some familiar territory. What we saw really in Genesis 4 was that Cain and Abel, right, there was, there was the murder, the first murder we see in the Bible. And where we saw with Adam and Eve, God said, don't eat of that fruit. And the day that you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. But they ate of that fruit, their eyes were opened. But what the information that Eve didn't have, that Adam didn't have in that moment, was that the moment you eat of that tree, the fruit of that tree, you are going to set into motion. You're going to, in, you're going to bring into this world something that will one day take the life of your son. Oh, and by the way, it's going to come at the hands of your other son. And what we see then with Cain and Abel, so we see the eating of the fruit in Genesis 3. In Genesis 4, we see the story of Cain and Abel, and then sin is having its way. And in Genesis 5, although it's a genealogy, what we see is this, this downward spiral. And what we're going to see this morning in just Genesis chapters, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, is this continued downward spiral until we get the story of Noah. Now, some of you guys, you, maybe you grew up in the church, maybe you didn't. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Noah. Maybe you know something about Noah. You're like, I don't know, there's an ark there. But is that ark the same as the ark of the covenant? I mean, I'm not sure. There's a big boat. I know there's, I think there might be some animals were, were taken in. And, and as we embark on the story of Noah, which is we're going to spend the majority of the next several weeks is the story of Noah, is that I want you to, whether you've heard it a million times, you've never heard it, I want, I want you to come to it with just a fresh, like fresh eyes and fresh ears. Maybe God's going to speak to you in new ways. There's a great danger when we come to the Bible and we think to ourselves, oh, I know this story. I know this story. Oh, I know this. And we just kind of flip through, flip through, and we get to something I don't know. I want to know more. And then we flip through, we flip through. And, and so when we come to know, I want you to come with some, some fresh eyes. And what we see is this downward spiral, downward spiral. And what we're going to see in chapter 6 where this downward spiral has led us. So if you got your Bibles, Turn with me to Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. It says this. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as their wives. Any they chose. Let me read that again. When, we be, uh, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. There's a couple of, we're going to see some controversial parts this morning in Genesis chapter 6, and the first one is actually, who are these sons of God's? Who are these sons of God? Now, we would say in the New Testament, you go, yeah, well, who are the sons of God? Like, oh, we are. Like, we are sons and daughter of God. That's what we're brought into the family. I would go, yes, that's absolutely 100% true. That, that in Christ, you are a son, you are a daughter of God. But just because the same terminology is used over here doesn't necessarily mean that's what it's being used over here. And so, interestingly enough, we have really sort of 
three sort of uh, there's three sort of main beliefs about who the sons of God are. Who are these sons of God that are that are that are taking the daughters uh, and, and and marrying them? And so the, the first idea, and this is the oldest one, uh, it's way, way, way back. Uh, the oldest idea is that these, these, these sons of God are angels, and actually they're, they're fallen angels. Uh, we see in Job, we see in Job that Job refers to, to, fall, to angels as, as sons of God. And so these, these fallen angels, we see this uh, in Peter. In First Peter and Second Peter, I think it's also in Jude, there's this reference to these, these angels in the time of Noah. And so the one idea is that the sons of God are, are these fallen angels and they are either, either possessing or they're doing something, but they are, they are ma- marrying the, uh, the, the daughters of men. The other one is that they're kings, that the sons of God are kings. And by the way, the first one is the, old, is the oldest one. The second idea is that they're, they're, they're kings and that this is the, the first idea of polygamy, that they are, they are creating these harems, which, which that one is not super widely held. The third one is that, that we looked at like last week. We saw, so Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel after Abel was killed. It says that Adam and Eve had another son, Seth, and that there's the line of Cain and there's the line of Seth. And some would say that the sons of God are the lines of Cain and the, son, the, the, the line of Seth are what we see with the daughters. But what's interesting People get caught up with that. Who are these sons of God? And are they fallen angels? And if so, what does that mean? And I go, well, the problem is, is that no matter your interpretation, the outcome is clear. They're filling the earth. Whatever is happening, they're filling the earth. They're getting married. And the idea is that it's getting worse and worse. They're filling the earth. They're getting married, and the downward spiral continues. So whoever is, this is happening, whoever those people are, what we do know is that they're filling the earth, they're getting married, and things are getting worse and worse. Which I think is actually very interesting because what we see here is what, what did God tell them back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3? What did he tell them? Fill the earth. We see them here in Genesis 6. We see them doing what? Filling the earth. They're doing exactly what God said. But interestingly enough, they're doing exactly what God said and things are actually getting worse and worse. To fill the earth. That was the commandment. Go fill the earth. And they're getting married. Marriage is a good thing. Now, they're not commanded to necessarily get married, but that would be sort of implied in, the, in the, the filling of the earth. That you get married, you have some kids, you fill the earth. Then they get married, they have kids, and then they fill the earth. And so we see really two things that they were, they were supposed to do. And we get to Genesis 6 and what's happening. That both of the things that they were supposed to be doing, filling the earth and getting married, are what? Are corruption. They were supposed to be the source of God's blessing, and then they become the source of corruption. And so, what do we do with that? I think a lot of me just says that this is exactly what sin does. Sin takes what is meant to be a blessing, corrupts it. And turns into more of a curse. 
This idea of, of marriage. I mean, right, right, right? The idea of the marriage was like supposed to be this cooperative partnership. Right? That, that, that God took Eve from the side. Not from the, the foot to be under, not from the head to be over, but from the side as a helper, a cooperative marriage. In fact, I, I, would, I would submit to you that the healthiest marriages that you have seen in your life, whether you're, you're modeling them or the other marriages that you see, is I, would, I would guarantee almost for you that you go, the, the couples you look at and go, man, they've got a great marriage. You think to yourself, man, they, they are really working together. They're cooperative. And it was, the crazy thing is, they may be totally different than one another. Like, oh, super introverted, super extroverted. A disaster with a calendar, super planner, you know. Uh, can't keep the house clean, she, you know, he likes to tidy up, or whatever it would be. And you go, so they're, they're not super similar, but there's mutual love, there's mutual respect. They work together as a partnership. Because why? Because that's, that's what the marriage is supposed to be, this cooperativeness. But then sin enters in. Sin corrupts. And then marriage is turned into not a cooperativeness, but to into a competitiveness. If you're good at planning, why aren't you good at planning like I'm good at planning? Yeah, but, but you know, you're, you're not good with money. Why aren't you better with You should be better with money. And see, what was meant to be a blessing... Sin comes in, sin corrupts, and turns into what feels like more like a curse. And so, by the way, the marriage, by the way, is not just, is not, is not the blessing, but it is a blessing. And so when we see about like the consequences of sin, people think that the consequences of sin is like, God's like, since you did this, here comes, here comes punishment over here. And I go, sometimes God does that, but that's not a lot of what he does. Oh, well, you lied and you cheated, so guess what? Uh, You get cancer. Like, that's not what God necessarily does. And what I have found is that oftentimes, like, the consequences of sin is that the blessing that God, something that God meant to be a blessing, because sin has its way, actually the consequence is what was meant to be a blessing becomes a curse. And so... These two things, children and marriage. Sin has its way. And we see this in Genesis chapter 6. They're getting married. It's not good. It's not good. They're having kids. It's not good. The more they get married, the more kids they have, the worse it gets. And what was meant to be a blessing and, and the commandment of God is now turned into a curse. And so, we think about this idea of, like, children. For those of you who have children, you ever feel like your children are a curse? <laughs> On the way to church. Yeah, I'm like, you, you know, I looked at the back row, my, I looked at my rear view, I saw all of the blessings of the Lord, and I thought, I am not blessed. And you go, what's happening there, right? The children that are meant to be a blessing feel more like a curse. Why? Because sin is at work. Sin is at work in them. You're like, mm-hmm, preach it, preach it. Let me, let me go bring them in really quickly. Pastor Josh said the, the, the sin is at work in you this morning. 
Ah, here's the problem. Sin's at work in you too, right? And what was meant to be a blessing now feels like a curse. Do you feel like your marriage has been more of a curse than a blessing? You go, what's happening there? I'll tell you what's happening there. Sin is at work. Sin is at work in you. Sin is at work in your spouse. And what was meant to be a blessing, because sin corrupts, it becomes a curse. Did you know that actually in the Bible, it's not just marriage, by the way. In the Bible, talks, Paul talks about something. He talks about singleness as a blessing. Singleness is a call. Singleness is a special gift. And I talk with those who are single. Often they don't feel like it's a gift at all. They don't feel like it's a gift at all. They feel like it's a curse. What's wrong with me? Why am I not? And you go, so what's happening there? Even the singleness that God meant to be a blessing because sin has, has its way has become a curse for you. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what happens is that people think that singleness is a curse, and so they reach out for the, the blessing of marriage. And then five years goes by, 10 years goes by, 20 years goes by, and they go, you know what? This is a curse. I need to, get, I need to throw off this curse so I can embrace the blessing of singleness. I talk to all sorts of people. Single people that think the blessing will lay when they're married. And married people that think the blessing will lay once that they are, they are single again. And round and round we go. And actually, I'll just, to, be, to be told, the healthiest people, the healthiest single people and the healthiest married people, the healthiest single people I've seen who embrace that singleness, whether it's for a season, just a season of life, or for a life, a call, they embrace the blessings of that. And actually, they're probably the healthiest people to get married. Because I embrace the singleness, the blessing of that. But there might be a blessing also in marriage. And so what, what sin does is sin comes in and sin corrupts and takes that which was meant to be a blessing and turns it into a curse. Sin takes that which God meant to be freedom. I mean, look at singleness in marriage, by the way. Singleness, there's great freedom in singleness. But there's a different kind of freedom in marriage. And what sin does is sin takes what God meant to be, what meant to be uh, freedom and a blessing and turns it into a curse and slavery. And this is what we see in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. They took the two things, marriage and children, meant to be blessings. Sin corrupted, and now it's more of a curse. Verse 3 and 4. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. 
And so once again, we have the, the question of like, well, who are the Nephilim? It's translated literally as giants. So just really big people. It says that later on, it says like uh, when the Israelites are looking into the, the, the land of Israel, when they're scouting the land, they guess what they see? They see the giants, these big people. And whatever is happening here, right? Whatever happening is here is that, is, that, is that things are on a downward spiral and that the marriage and that the blessings of children are actually taking society and culture deeper and deeper. And then God's response when he looks all to this, it says, I'm not going to intend. My, my spirit will not, will not abide with man forever. Another translation literally could be, it's not going to contend with him. I'm not going to keep on doing, let me, let me rephrase that. I'm not going to keep on doing this. Maybe if you are a parent and you have an interesting interaction with your child and they want to keep on fighting. I said, no, I said, no. They want to keep on fighting. They want to keep on pitching. Like, you know, yeah, at some point, you, go, you know, I'm done. I'm done arguing with you. I'm not, I'm not going to contend with you anymore. I'm going to step back. And what we see in Genesis chapter 1, right, we see the Spirit of God is bringing order to everything. And with the Spirit of God steps back, what we're going to see is chaos ensue. The Spirit of God brings order, and when the Spirit of God is removed, what we see is chaos. That's true of the world. That's true of you. It's true in, in, in the, the story of the world. That's true in, in your story. Where like the Spirit of God comes in, the Spirit of God brings a lot of order. Spirit of God steps back. Chaos. And what it says is, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, to contend forever. This idea that the Holy Spirit stops contending, the descent will get worse and worse. It's the Spirit of God and His presence in this world that changes everything. Let me say that again. It's the Spirit of God and His presence in this world that changes everything. It's the Spirit of God in this country that changes everything. I mean, I, I talk with Christians right now, and there's this idea that we need to get back. We need to get back. We need a, we need a revival. But a lot of times what we're talking about getting back to is just Christian morality. We need to get back. Like, what do you mean by that? Oh, you know, um, people need to respect their elders more. I mean, I, I would agree with that. People need to be kinder to their neighbors. I, I, I agree with that too. People need to uh, be, be more honest. There be, you know, people, you know pe- people used to be honest. Be more of that. I go, yeah. But Christian morality is not what's going to change us. Christian morality will not bring revival. The only thing that ever has and ever will bring revival is the Spirit of God. And if the Spirit of God goes away, chaos will ensue. And if the Spirit of God increases, order comes about, and revival happens. I think that so many of us would we don't, we don't want, and we're going to talk about Christianity in general. We don't want revival. What we want is to be comfortable morally. And I go, but here's the thing. I don't, I don't really care about, 
about a country that's Christianly moral. What I care about is a country which is experiencing revival by the moving of the Spirit. That's what I want. And morality, I put it, morality can be instituted by politicians and enforced with policy. So morality can be instituted by politicians and enforced with policy. But it's only the Spirit of God that can bring about revival. And here's the interesting thing is, is that revival doesn't seem to come as people slowly move back to morality. It's like, oh, look at this. People started being nicer. They started being more generous. They started being kinder to their neighbor. And then we just saw widespread revival. You look at history. That's not what we see. I'll tell you what we see. We see a descent, a descent, a descent. It gets bad. It gets worse. It gets bad. It gets worse. It gets bad. It gets worse. Then the Spirit of God does something new and revival ensues. And so it, but it's why it freaks out Christians. They go, Josh, it's getting worse out there. I go, I know, yeah. It's getting worse. Who can save us? That's a great question. Who can save us? Great question. We're so far from. I go, well, histor- I don't know what God's going to do in the future. I really don't. But historically speaking, it actually gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then the Spirit of God decides to do something new and revival happens. People want comfortable revivals. There's just not a lot of them out there in history. And so the Spirit of God says, I'm not going to contend forever. Verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of, his, of the thoughts of his heart were, was only evil continually. Let me read that again. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I love that. Like, what about a little bit? No, no, always, continually, every thought. I mean, you listen to what, what, what the author is saying here. It's like, it's like well, was just a little bit of a window? Like, no, every thought continually, always wicked. When God looked down, that's what he saw. We talk about this idea that the, that the, the, the depravity of man, there's this, been this downward spiral. When you think about Genesis 3, right? Eve has one thought. I desire that fruit. Now, I wouldn't look at Genesis 3 and go, you know what? Every thought of Eve and Adam was continually, always, every, continually wicked. No. He had one thought. One thought was, I want that fruit. I'm going to eat that fruit. God said, don't eat that fruit. They ate that fruit. And you take that trajectory over a few thousand years, and where do we end up? We end up in a culture, a world, where every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. I often find the first steps of, like, rebellion are not that problematic. Like, maybe God comes along and says, hey, you shouldn't do that. And you go, yeah, but I'll do that anyways. And then you do that and you go, what was the big deal? No big deal. No lightning bolt came. No huge consequences. Actually, 
It was kind of nice. Not going to lie, kind of nice. But the problem is, is that actually God doesn't see just that step. He sees the third step, the fourth step, the tenth step, the thousandth step. And he goes, so you go down this path and what it's going to do is going to send you on a trajectory that will lead you to a place like this. How did you end up so wicked? Start with the thought. One of the, the, the big differences, by the way, between, you've heard me talk about this though, but the big differences between humanism and Christianity is that humanism believes at, at the core of humanity that we're, 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 we've got this bent towards good. Humanity is essentially, essentially humans are good. And if given enough freedom and given enough time, they will live out their, their, their goodness and the world will become a better and a better place. And Christianity says, actually, we believe, so humanity, so humanism says, we believe essentially humanity has got this bent towards good and given enough time, enough freedom, that the world will become a better and a better place. And then Christianity comes along and says, actually, we believe that humanity has got this bent towards, towards, towards evil. And we think that given enough time and enough freedom, that humanity will take us to a place that's worse and worse. And by the way, like, you don't need the Bible to tell you that this is true. Do, do your own research. You look at history. You look at our news today. And you tell me, if given enough freedom and given enough time, are we being led to a better and a better place or a worse and a worse place? That should tell you something about what's at our core. People want to talk about technology. Technology, technology, technology. Is it good or is it evil? I go, technology, all technology will ever do as we get, as we get maybe smarter or faster or quicker. I go, all technology will ever do, for the most part, is it's going to amplify and speed up the things that are already true inside of us. I've seen people who are Christians who have used technology for great, wonderful work. But I've seen other people use technology for horrible things. And you go, so what does it do? It will speed up and it will amplify the things that are already inside of us. And so what, what Genesis is saying is that it, it did this downward spiral, downward spiral, until we got to this place where every single thought, everything was wicked, continually, always. Verse 6 and 7. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out. I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. And so God looks down at the earth. He looks at all of this. And it grieves him. And it angers him. Why? Because what we were given as a blessing, sin corrupted. And it has now become a curse. I mean, think about what went out for you. Like, say like, say like somebody gave you money. So you, so you gave somebody some money to somebody. said, hey, here's $100. And the word came back to you 
that that person used the hundred dollars. You know, you know, you and you walked out from that. You actually, I feel pretty, I feel pretty generous. Like I'm glad I could help them out. And then somebody came back to you and said, "Oh, do you know what they did with that hundred dollars?" Like, no, what? They go, "Oh, they they went out and bought some drugs and got loaded." Or maybe even worse, bought drugs, got loaded, committed a crime, killed a man. You know how you'd feel? My guess is you'd feel both grieved and angered. Why? Because what you, what you gave as a blessing, what you thought was supposed to be a blessing, I, 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 used, I, I gave that to you as a blessing. What you did was you took it and you, and you turned it into a curse. You corrupted it. And so, so what was given to us as a blessing, sin corrupts and now becomes a curse. And what we see is we see a God who is grieved. We see a God who is angered. And by the way, verse 6 is what makes me think I can trust this God. Because when he sees the world in its state, in, verse, in chapter 6, he's grieved and he's angered. I could not trust a God who would look at the world in this condition in chapter 6, in the condition that we are today in 2019. Couldn't trust a God who just looked at all of that. And in, in, in verse chapter 6, verse 8, God says, Hey, you guys do you. Couldn't trust that God. Couldn't trust a God who maybe in, in, in chapter 6, verse 6, sees all of this. And thinks to himself, and, said, and then the, great, the, the Lord said to all of the people, not my problem. I could not trust a God who sees all this happening in chapter 6, then in 6-6. Six, six, and the Lord speaks with a thunderous voice from heaven and says, well, those are some interesting choices you've made, right? Couldn't trust that God. I can trust a God who looks at the state of the world and is both grieved and angered. And by the way, sort of a side note, do you know that pretty much at the heart of all of your anger is grief? Whenever anybody's ever dealing with anger, I think to myself, they're grieving something. And I've got to figure out what they're grieving. You have a problem with anger? You're grieving something. I mean, think just really like, for a second, just think about a basic, like the basic, basic anger of a child. They want the toy. They don't get the toy. So what do they do? They throw a fit for that toy. And really you go, well, they're not, yeah, they're actually, they are grieving something. They're grieving, we call it, that's why we call it, one of the we call it the terrible twos. They're grieving a world. They're, they're grieving the loss of a world that doesn't revolve around them. For sure to be grieved. Needs to be grieved. But you better believe that's a grief. Because before that, when they cried, they were fed. Before that, when they cried, they got what they wanted. The world revolved around them. And at the age of two, they begin to grieve a world in which the world does not revolve around them. And so what comes out of that is anger. You can tie almost all of your anger back to your grieving something. And what we see here is we see a God who is grieving the world as it is. And his grief moves him to anger, and his anger moves him to action. Now, what actually happens with us a lot of times, we don't understand where the grief, we don't understand that there is grief. We just understand the anger, 
But because we don't understand the grief, when the anger comes along, oh, we act. Oh, we act, but uh, typically in the wrong way. And I go, well, we, we, we act in the wrong way because we actually don't know where the anger came from. So we don't actually know what would even satisfy said anger. But what we see with God is God knows where it came from. He knows what he's grieving. He knows why he's angry. And he knows what to do with said anger. And he goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move towards action. And the action says that he's going to blot out humanity. Those who I've created from the face of the earth. To which we go, oh, that's the story of Noah. God wipes out the earth. But I go, but I don't think that is the story of Noah. Because look at verse 8. It's just right on the heels of that. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The story of Noah is that God wipes out the earth. That's what it says in verse 7, right? Wipes out the earth. Wipes out humanity. I go, but if that's the story of Noah, then why does verse 8 start with, but, but Noah? I thought he said humanity. But Noah. Did Noah like... <laughs> Like, find a way out? I mean, did he, like, like God's like, oh, that humanity, done. Like, oh, wait, we missed, we missed, we missed. Okay, we missed one, but we got pretty close. We got pretty close. Do you know that God, just, I mean, just to, at the risk of stating the obvious, God could have started over. Because, oh, he did start over. No, he didn't start over. Start, starting over would have been Done? Okay. Well, Genesis 1-1. Again, we're going to try this one. Again, that would have been starting over. But Noah tells us something. Noah tells us that this is a God about redemption. He's the one who redeems creation. That Noah really is a story. Although, yes, we're going to, are we going to see judgment? You better believe we're going to see judgment. But in said judgment, we will find redemption. That's why verse 8 is there. But Noah, God is grieved. God is angered. He is going to wipe out the land. But Noah, he's a God of redemption. And often his redemption comes through judgment. And so sin takes that which is meant to be a blessing, corrupts it, and it becomes a curse. And what, I would say, like, what, what, man, what man takes from blessing to curse, God takes from curse to blessing. That's the redemptive work. Man takes it from blessing to curse, God's redemptive work takes it from curse back to blessing. By the way, this is why people were really confused about Jesus being the Messiah. Think about this for a second. 
There's all of this prophecy in the Old Testament about the one to come, the one to come, the one to come. And with him comes the kingdom. And with him comes the restoration of Israel. And with him comes all of this blessing, right? All of this blessing. All of these blessings are going to come with the Messiah. All of these blessings are going to come with the Messiah. And then Jesus shows up and he goes, I am the Messiah. And what they're thinking to themselves, with the Messiah comes the kingdom. And with the kingdom comes the blessings of God. That God is restoring the blessings to Israel. But then they got really confused when he was crucified. Because you know what it tells us about those who are crucified? That cursed is the man who hangs on the tree. And they think to themselves, if he's the blessings of God, why is he so cursed? Genesis 6 tells us, because that's what sin does. Sin takes that which went to be the blessing, corrupts it. Now, Jesus was not corrupted, but took on the sin, took on the corruption, and became the curse. So that the curse could once again be the blessing, which is the story of the resurrection. What, what, what humanity does, humanity takes the blessing and cor- sin corrupts it. It becomes the curse. And what God does through his redemptive work, as we're going to see, takes the curse and returns it to blessing. And so my question to you as we embark on Noah is where do you need the blessing of God. Like, where in your life do you feel like the blessing, like, man, this is supposed to be a blessing. But it feels more like a curse right now. Like, where is that true for you? Is it true in your job? True in your marriage? True with your children? True in your house? True even with the life that God has given you. God, man, it just feels like this life should be more of a blessing, but man, it feels like a curse. What's going on? Sin has corrupted it. Whether the sin of you, the sin of others, a mixture. And your blessing has turned to a curse. And the same thing is true of you that's true in Genesis chapter 6, which is you need the Spirit of God to do something new. I don't want to just tell you, like, so go and be different people. Go and stop turning God's blessings into curses. Stop it. Just just stop it. It's a nice message, but it's it's not sufficient. Because what you need is more than that. What you need is the Spirit of God to do something new. What you need is God's restorative act. You need His redemption. And redemption, by the way, through and through the Bible, is not a human activity, but that's a God activity. 
And so what you need is you need your curse to be turned back into a blessing. And that will take some work on your part, but, but it's the Spirit of God that will do that. And what I want you to do this week is I want you just to ask the Spirit of God, like, Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, would you, would you, would you move? Would you step into, would you revive? Would you turn, whatever this is, would you turn what it seems to be this curse, would you, would you do a new work and would you turn it back into a blessing again? Whether that's your individual life, whether that's our life as, as a culture, as a world, as a church. And then we find that in Genesis 6, it's not just something that God did, but it's something that he does. And may you experience that, may I experience that, and may as a community we experience that. Let's pray. And as we pray, I just want to give you just a second right now, just, just to actually, in this moment, tell God to say, God, I just feel like this has become a curse. I know that you meant it to be a blessing, but it feels like a curse. And tell God that. Now I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, say, Holy Spirit, would you, would you do something new? Would you revive? Would you return it back from the curse to a blessing? Ask him that now. God, I don't know all of the prayers that are lifted up in this room, but you do. I can't hear them, for for they're all spoken in the quietness of their soul. But there is a, a, a loud, resounding sound in your courtroom, at your throne. God, I pray that you would take that which has become the curse that was meant to be the blessing but has become the curse. And I pray by your spirit, whatever your spirit would do, but that your spirit would return it. There'd be redemption in marriage, with children, in jobs, in relationships. In finances, there would be redemption. And that which is, seems to be the curse would be a blessing once again. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.